We are back. Uh, we'd like to uh, start this segment by noting uh, our favorite uh, blogger, our favorite comedic blogger, Tom Burka, wrote the following. Bush in delicate negotiations with senators over drafting of new law he will completely ignore. Wrote Tom, It is very important to the president that he and the Senate agree on the precise contents of the law he will not be obeying, said White House spokesman Tony Snow. There must be a real spirit of give and take, of true compromise, in fashioning what will soon be completely irrelevant to the White House, agreed Senators John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and John Warner. Wrote uh, Tom, not very humorously, but accurately, President Bush and the White House have been adamant that the Senate pass a law that allows for an expanded view of what kinds of interrogations are permissible under the Geneva Conventions. But in the face of opposition from McCain and others, they're now signaling they may give up some of their specific demands to just get the law through Congress. After that, the president will issue a signing statement reiterating his belief that these laws are not binding upon him. We've talked about this before. One of the most remarkable aspects of the Bush presidency is the fact that every time he signs a law into, uh, into existence, he does add these statements saying, here's the parts that I don't think apply to me. And, and no, we can't explain why so far that has failed to generate a constitutional crisis in the United States. It certainly seems like it would uh, make the grade. Mr. Burker closed that piece by quoting Cletus Killfish, an inmate doing 20 to life in prison in Fishkill, New York, expressed his admiration for President Bush. Damn, he said, I got to get me some of them signing statements. I thought of a Tom Burke's blog when I saw this headline in the Sacramento Bee on Saturday. Bush may ignore part of Bill's FEMA changes. Dateline Washington. President Bush reserved the right to ignore key changes in Congress's overhaul of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, including a requirement to appoint someone with experience handling disasters as the agency's director. Bush's moves came in a controversial assertion of executive authority known as a signing statement, which the White House issued late Wednesday, the same day Bush signed the $34 billion measure. Congress has assailed the unprecedented extent of Bush's use of signing statements to reinterpret or repudiate measures approved by lawmakers instead of exercising a formal veto. Lawmakers of both parties said Bush was ignoring precedent and neglecting lessons of the bungled response to Katrina. And I can't resist at this point going to This Modern World's cartoon by Tom Tomorrow, from, from I guess it was last week, starting out with, Where are we now? The president demands the legal authority to torture his captives. But I am willing to compromise as long as everyone else shuts the hell up and gives me exactly what I want. With John McCain in the background saying, Consensus is achieved. Lindsey Graham saying, it's democracy in action. Anyway, this so-called compromise uh, did pretty much appear to give the president exactly what he wanted. Writing about this episode, the San Francisco Chronicle said, some compromise. The White House got exactly what it wanted, an authorization from Congress to continue extracting information from detainees through physical and mental suffering. Certain alternative interrogation methods have been eliminated, but Bush remains free to bend norms of justice. We are no longer a nation that simply and unequivocally does not use torture. You know, this would be a good topic to ask Jeff Kravitz about when he returns to the program in the weeks to come. 
And looking back at this Tom Tomorrow strip, it's like every single panel is just such a little gem. Panel two was as follows. The National Intelligence Estimate confirms that the war in Iraq has increased the threat of terrorism. To which a couple of stern-looking Americans are saying, but how could we have known that throwing a Middle Eastern nation into a fractured chaos might benefit the terrorists? (laughs) The other guy goes, no sensible person could have possibly foreseen such an outcome. I do like the third panel, too. A couple of soldiers out in the Iraqi battlefield saying, the military stretched to the breaking point. One soldier. Fortunately, my morale remains high, thanks to all the young college Republicans back home fighting the war of ideas. The other soldier. I can't think of a more useful contribution those 18 to 22-year-olds could make. Now, we have a good mind to pick up the phone and call. UC Davis says college Republicans and find out why it is they're not volunteering in droves for this worthy effort in Iraq. But I think we'll resist the notion. Anyway, the big story that should be reverberating around Washington uh, about Bob Woodward's book, how uh, Bush and Rumsfeld have deceived themselves about, about the war in Iraq, is something we have to spend a few minutes on. That same uh, Newsweek uh, October 9th issue that contains excerpts from Woodward's book had a a whole little section titled The Rise of Jihadistan. Talks about how the Taliban are fighting back and carving out a sanctuary in Afghanistan where they and al-Qaeda's leaders can operate freely. This, This hardly got any play, but you may have noticed that NATO has taken charge in Afghanistan U.S. forces that are fighting insurgents in the eastern provinces, the provinces that border Pakistan, well, NATO's taking command of them. NATO's got about 31,000 troops uh, in eastern Afghanistan. We, the U.S., have about 10,000 forces in the eastern provinces bordering Pakistan. So the bad news is here is the National Intelligence Estimate that was the secret study published a few weeks back, at least it was parts of it were leaked, reveals that um, the powers that be in Washington are looking at Iraq and realizing that this is now a training ground for terrorists. And now it appears Afghanistan is the same. So while we've taken our eye off the ball in Afghanistan to focus instead on Iraq, a nation which didn't attack us, uh, Well, while we've done that, the Taliban is back. And also, you may have noticed, the North Koreans have announced that they have tested an atomic weapon. The Sacramento Bee published a picture of uh, George Bush on the cover on Tuesday on top of an article titled, U.S. Focus on Iraq at Fault, Critics Say, in referring to the fact that uh, while we're talking about weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist in Iraq... North Korea apparently has been going about trying to make an atomic bomb. We'll talk about that in a minute, but let's go back to Bob Woodward and The Price of Denial. In uh, excerpting his book, State of Denial, for this article, there's some pretty amazing things that, uh, that came out. As things are floundering in Iraq, Woodward noted, the president, normally one to rely on his inner circle, has been consulting outsiders. Writing a preface uh, to the excerpts, John Barry in Newsweek wrote, As you read the excerpt that follows, keep in mind some essential context. The administration was not just unlucky. It was almost willfully blind to the risks entailed in invading and occupying a large, traumatized, and deeply riven Arab country. Rumsfeld, 
who pushed aside Rice and Secretary of State Colin Powell to take over even the planning for post-war Iraq, wanted a lean and mean force to get in and get out quickly. That was all good and well as long as American forces could turn over the job of running the country to an effective group of local Iraqis, but the planning for this was hamstrung by disputes over the post-war role of Iraqi exiles. Remember Ahmed Chalabi? Well, he's the guy... Well, let's come to that in a minute. Suffice it to say, the exiles who helped get us into this war were responsible for us not being able to get out quickly. According to Bob Woodward, on January 20th, 2003, we would remind you about the time the administration was saying there were no definite plans to go to war, Bush signed a secret National Security Presidential Directive, NSPD-24. The subject was setting up an Iraq post-war planning office. Donald Rumsfeld picked Jay Garner, 64-year-old retired three-star general and defense industry executive, to head the post-war office. Garner puts together an 11-page handout and meets with the White House a month later. Garner tells the administration that four of the nine tasks his small team was supposed to be in charge of in Iraq under NSPD-24 were plainly beyond their capabilities. These included dismantling weapons of mass destruction, defeating terrorists, reshaping the Iraqi military, and reshaping the other internal Iraqi security institutions. Wrote Woodward, the president nodded. No one else intervened, though Garner had just told them he couldn't be responsible for crucial post-war tasks. The import of what he had said seemed to sail over everyone's heads. You remember how Jay Garner was talking about we'd have elections really quickly in Iraq once we went in? Well, shortly after the invasion, while Garner was still in Kuwait, waiting for his move into Iraq, Donald Rumsfeld chose Paul Jerry Bremer, a 61-year-old terrorism expert and protege of Henry Kissinger, to effectively replace Garner. Apparently, Iraqi, the Iraqi exile community convinced the Pentagon that they should debathify Saddam Hussein's uh, military. And once Bremer got there, he pushed forward plans to get rid of 50,000 members of uh, what had been Saddam Hussein's party from the military. These, of course, were a lot of the commanders. Garner told uh, Bremer in Iraq, you won't be able to run anything if you go this deep. But the next day, Bremer disbanded the Iraqi ministries of defense and interior, the entire Iraqi military, all of Saddam's bodyguards and special paramilitary organizations. Garner was stunned. The debathification order was dumb, but this was a disaster. We have always made plans to bring the army back, he insisted. This new plan was just coming out of the blue, subverting months of work. Well, the plans have changed, Bremer said. So Garner comes back to Washington, talks to Rumsfeld and says that there's three bad ideas in Iraq. Debathification of the army, dumping the Iraqi leadership, and disbanding the military. Now, he said there were hundreds of thousands of disorganized, unemployed, armed Iraqis running around. Garner looked at Rumsfeld hopefully and said, there's still time to rectify this. There's still time to turn it around. I don't think there's anything we can do, said Rumsfeld, because we are where we are. Rumsfeld then takes Garner over to meet the president for a second meeting, wherein none of his reservations are brought forth. He simply tells the president in all these meetings he had with Iraqis, they said afterwards, thank you for taking away Saddam Hussein. 
Bush said, oh, that's good. And on the way out, Bush slapped Garner on the back and said, hey, Jay, you want to do Iran? Responded Garner, sir, the boys and I talked about that, and we want to hold out for Cuba. We think the rum and cigars are a little better, and the women are prettier. Bush laughed, you got it. You got Cuba. All right, I don't want to go on and on about this, but the other interesting aspect about uh, about this book, as it was excerpted in Newsweek, was the fact that um, a lot of people wanted to get rid of Rumsfeld, realizing he was a liability. But Karl Rove stepped in and said, uh, well, if we get rid of him, there'll have to be confirmation hearings for whoever he's replaced with. And if we do that, well, they'll be able to make the, the confirmation hearings a political issue. So rather than risk the conduct of the war in Iraq becoming the subject of confirmation hearings, uh, Rove decided that we're going to keep Rumsfeld. They didn't want to do anything that would prompt hearings on the war. So we therefore face this uh, disturbing statistic, according to USA Today. In December, Donald Rumsfeld will surpass Robert McNamara as the longest-serving defense secretary in U.S. history. By the way, I wish we'd go back to calling it the War Department. Because what's going on in Iraq in defense, that's war. Let's just close this by talking about the fact that Ken Edelman spoke to uh, Bob Woodward. Edelman, of course, was one of the biggest cheerleaders among the neocons for the war. But Woodward noted that uh, he'd become entirely disillusioned over the administration's handling of the post-war. His relationship with Donald Rumsfeld was almost over. Edelman talked to the defense secretary and asked him, what metrics would you use for success in Iraq? You know, for winning the war. Oh, there are hundreds, Rumsfeld replied. It's just so complicated that there are hundreds. Wait a minute, Edelman insisted. A former boss of mine always said, identify three or four things. Then ask about, get measurements, and you'll get progress. Or else you'll never get any progress. That former boss was Rumsfeld himself, who had driven the point home to Edelman 35 years ago when he worked for Rumsfeld at the Office of Economic Opportunity. Let's just excerpt a, a minute here of our conversation a couple of weeks back, uh, our satirical conversation with Senator Joe Lieberman. Well, our last question yes. uh, would simply be, what's our goal in Iraq, as you see it, Senator? You mean an end point? Yes. Like a finality, sort of coming to a wrap-up kind of a thing? Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't think we have just one. But, okay, yeah. Well, we'll, well, well, right now, we'll settle for one clearly stated attainable goal. Yeah, well, I, uh, I have a call on the other line, Doug. Can I get uh, back to you on that? Can I, get, uh, can well, I call uh, you back? Yes, you can call us back, yes. Yeah, I look forward to talking goals then. But in the meantime, just remember, the juggernaut of Jomentum will build, Doug. You'll see. That's right. We put words in Lieberman's mouth saying, I don't think we have just one goal in Iraq. And here's the Secretary of Defense, in reality, telling one of his trusted aides, oh, there's hundreds, but he can't name any. I think at this point, we're in need of a break. Let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Mm-hmm.